In this episode of the Fit for Golf podcast, I am joined by Dr. Andy Galpin. Andy has a bachelor's degree in exercise science, a master's degree in human movement science, and a PhD in human bioenergetics. He is now a full-time professor in Cal State Fullerton and director of the Center for Sport Performance. Andy is not just an academic, however. He is also a high-level athlete himself, is a strength and conditioning coach to dozens of professional athletes, and recently became a contributor to TPI for their power modules. It is safe to say Andy knows his stuff, and I was very happy to get an hour of his time to talk about physical training for golf. He is truly one of the world leaders in physical training for sports. Just before we get started, a quick reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. It is currently being used by over 3,000 golfers around the world, ranging all the way from PGA Tour winners to high handicaps to juniors just getting started and seniors trying to combat father time. There are programs for everyone and you can get a one-month trial for just $6 by going to www.fitforgolf.blog forward slash app, selecting monthly and entering the code FFGTRIAL. You will not find it in the app store. You must go to the website and register first. Now to the interview with Dr. Andy Galpin. Dr. Andy Galpin, thank you very much for joining me on the Fit for Golf podcast. How are you doing? I'm amazing. I have a rough start to the morning, but doing great now. That's good. Yeah, th- thankfully you, you got here eventually. Um, Andy, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners and giving us a little bit of a background into who you are and what you do, please? Sure. I am a professor at Cal State Fullerton, um, and I, I direct the Center for Sport Performance out there. So I'm a scientist, I'm a full-time faculty member. I teach in the areas uh, of strength and conditioning, muscle physiology, performance nutrition. Uh, Our laboratories study all things that could potentially enhance human performance. So this could be from the biomechanics perspective, the exercise physiology, sports nutrition. My particular specialty is muscle biology. So we take muscle biopsies and we study muscle at the single cell and molecular and even genetic level, but it's all under the guile of human performance. So we don't study disease and fat loss and, you know, health or like that. I'm trying to maximize human performance. So uh, I'm a scientist. We publish papers in this area. You know, I teach, and then I also work with professional athletes. Uh, So mostly in the combat sports and NFL and UFC and boxers and wrestlers. I'm on all things human performance. So a little bit of a scientist, a little bit of a teacher, and then a little bit of a practitioner as well. Fantastic. Thank you. You're a recent contributor to TPI too, is that correct? To try yeah. and help yeah. them with their strength and conditioning kind of education content? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, they're, they're not too far down the road from us here. So uh, a couple of years ago, they've been hounding me for <laughs> several years, actually. And uh, Greg Rose and I finally got together and, and I put some stuff together for their power, training for power for golfers courses. So yeah, uh, that's fantastic. Really well. Yeah, excellent. Really good stuff. Andy, the people listening to this podcast are golf and training enthusiasts, but they don't have physiology backgrounds. Most of them are aware we have fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers. Can you explain a little bit how these fibers are organized and what the difference is between them? Sure. I'm not sure how much detail you want me to get into here. Um, probably so, not too deep into the the kind of molecular level right. for the listeners more so i i guess the the practical differences that that they can use to maybe guide some of their training and and understand why some athletes are maybe very powerful and others are maybe not so powerful yeah well on its face the different fibers are exactly what they're called so fast twitch fibers are faster which means they contract with more velocity that tends to mean they also produce more power because power is a function of force multiplied by velocity. Slow twitch ones have better endurance. So if you look at something like a game of golf, uh, I know it's you know four to five to six hours for a round, but really there's a tremendous amount of rest in between. And so it's not really something that challenges your conditioning uh, in, in a classic sense of the word, right? There's certainly golf specific conditioning and folks fall apart on the back nine when they get you know, if tired and it's hot out and things like that. But for the most part, you're talking about a, a sport that's heavily reliant upon these fast twitch fibers. 
Um, now, I, again, I understand you're not swinging every swing as with full power, probably, you know, only one or two shots per hole, hopefully, that are at full power uh, at close. Any more than that, you, you've probably got issues. You're probably in the sand yeah. and in the grass somewhere. Um, but so if you just take that and extrapolate that out, that, it's still several hundred swings per day at max power. And anyone who's been paying attention to, to Bryson and, and uh, you know, even going back 20 years to Tiger, um, hitting the ball farther, if you can maintain the same accuracies, it's a big, big, big advantage. And that's that's pretty clear. So this is going to be driven heavily by these fast twitch fibers. Um, they are throughout your entire body. And the amount of fast twitch fibers you have differs from person to person. So some folks are heavily dominant on slow twitch, some of the opposite, and then a lot of folks are in between. So within each muscle, say your your glutes or your hamstrings, um, they differ by muscle groups. So hamstrings as a collective group of muscles tend to be more fast twitch than slow twitch. So something used for max effort sprinting and jumping. But if you look at things like your lower back muscles, those tend to be almost exclusively slow twitch because you're not really supposed to explode through your lower back. It's supposed to be stable and keep you upright and vertical all the time. So if we look at something like a golf swing, one of the things we've seen in recent years is the emphasis and desire to enhance things like rotation and, and the glute extension. Well, the reason is we need to be able to be stable and not fatigue in our slow twitch muscles so that the fast twitch muscles can contract fully without having to take the place of the slow twitch muscles. So I guess to think of it this way, if your fast twitch muscles are doing the job of your slow twitch muscles, then they're going to fatigue early and you're going to lose power and be low over the course of, of the round, right? Or practice rounds or training, whatever you're doing. If you look at um, the opposite, if the slow twitch muscles are, are too present and you don't have enough fast twitch muscles, well, then you're just not going to be able to produce enough uh, velocity on the, on the club head. So that's the functional difference. Um, the nice part is the amount of fast versus slow you have is trainable and, and it can be changed. So I think that's probably, I assume that's where you're going to go next, but that's the, the overview I think that they would be most interested in hearing so far. So in regards to the amount of fast twitch and slow twitch being trainable, is it that we can change those proportions or we can just train the muscle proportions that we have to behave differently? It's both. Yeah, it's very clearly both. So we've seen you know, extensive evidence to show that the individual fast twitch fibers can get faster. And in fact, we've seen this uh, literally tens of thousands of times now. Uh, you know, we, we've had hundreds of thousands of muscle fibers come through the lab. So when I, I literally mean tens of thousands of times, you can see a slow twitch fiber get faster. In fact, it can get so fast, it would almost be at the same speed of a normal fast twitch fiber. Whoa. And then the fast twitch fibers can get excessively high. You're looking at typically, um, we can, it, it gets more detailed than this. I'm kind of giving you the, the big overview here, but the, the fast twitch fibers are often five to six times faster and the slow twitch, and then there's special kinds of fast twitch fibers that are even 20 times faster. So it can move a lot um, in the velocity, but then they can also change, as you mentioned. So you can convert a slow twitch fiber to a fast twitch fiber um, very easily. So you've got the ability to do both. Okay, that's that's fascinating. Um, that's, that's largely going to come down to exactly what we do with our activity then. So there's going to be certain types of training modalities that are going to encourage fast twitch fast twitch fibers shifting towards slow twitch and vice versa. There's training modalities that can move slow twitch fibers more towards a fast twitch um, presence, basically. Yeah. Well, a couple of things on that. Number one, we all start at a different spot based on inheritance, right? So there is ability to move, but you're still stuck within the range that you're born in, right? So <clears throat> obviously if you're born uh, 50% fast twitch and 50% slow twitch, uh, and somebody's born 70% fast twitch, well, they're, they're way ahead of the game to start, right? So, and, and obviously, if you're already at 70%, the rate of increase in fast twitch fibers is much slower because you're, you're closer to the genetic ceiling, right? You're closer to 100%. Um, if you went in the other direction, though, somebody was 70% fast twitch, it's pretty easy for them to get slow twitch ones because there's a long range for them to go. So that's important point number one is, Yes, there's variability, but certainly there's a genetic inheritance that, that explains, you know, at least 50% of how, what your fast twitch fiber profile looks like. 
And then we have really strong evidence to su suggest and show things like even your nutrition. Now, this has never been shown in humans, but it's been shown dozens, if not a hundred times in different studies um, to work in animal models. I just, I'm not aware of anyone who's actually even tried to study it in humans. Uh, but it's there's strong reason to think the different micronutrient composition of your diet specifically can influence your fiber type. And we've seen this, again, pretty sensibly. We know the exact molecules that are doing it. So it's not just like a random thing. Like it's pretty, pretty strong evidence. So um, that's why we say everything matters. Everything is everything, right? Um, stress can do the same thing too. O2 and CO2. We've seen heat, like sauna work. We've seen cold have an influence on fiber type composition. So you really make, need to make sure that you're doing everything correctly uh, to try to get the adaptation you're looking for. So, you, you know, it's really important you have a high performance guide or somebody that can understand that role to make sure you're moving in the right direction. And this is why you can see pretty remarkable changes in people, especially with a sport like golf where club head speed is a, is a very predictable mark. You can move that needle pretty well, pretty fast. Yeah, training needs to be very specific to the type of adaptation you're looking for. I think that's a really good point. That actually sets us up nicely for the next couple of questions I had, Andy, and we might go back a little bit more towards the physiology stuff towards the end, but a couple of training questions now that will tie in nicely with the kind of fast twitch and, and slow twitch um, idea is golfers who are trying to increase club head speed are trying to move a very light implement faster and faster. How can training with heavy weights, which will naturally be moving slowly, impact our ability to move light things faster yeah okay so there's a lot i could say on this topic um i'll start off by saying i have only worked a small amount with professional golfers extremely small i've had a bunch reach out um it just hasn't worked out yet but i do have a decent amount of experience in major league baseball and pitchers and it's a similar situation it's rotational and they're trying to move a six ounce uh ball at over 100 miles an hour right so it's the same ballpark here and for decades people said you can't teach someone to throw harder in baseball you can't improve velocity because it's so light right how would a heavy thing ever get you and we have shown now just routinely for over a decade and you can look at driveline baseball it's a fantastic company who's just changed the game here and so i'll share with you you know roughly what what driveline does and they just keep putting velocity on even major league baseball players which is crazy. And if you look at the average velocity of, of a pitcher in uh, MLB now, it's up five or six miles per hour in the last decade. It's, if you don't throw 95, um, I know a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of your audience is maybe not calibrated these numbers, but um, when I was a kid, if you threw 90, it's, it's like, okay, you're going to the bigs. Now you can throw 98 and you might not get anywhere. Like that's, that's how big of a deal it was. So um, how does heavy training help you throw something light faster? We have to understand the basics of what's called the force velocity curve. Okay, so you have to do a little bit of physics here. Um, force equals your mass of the implement multiplied by the acceleration. Okay, power is that force multiplied by the velocity. If you take something that is heavier, the maximum velocity it can move goes down. So the heavier an object gets, the slower the velocity. This ends up being this kind of, not totally like a, like half of an upside down U. So if you took the first half of the upside down U and then cut it off, that's what that curve looks like. So if I take a, uh, what's a normal driver weigh? About 330 grams, roughly. I okay, think. 330 grams, totally makes sense. I could buy that. Um, now if I took that, and let's see, I could swing that 100 miles per hour i don't know um that's a normal number we would use. 100 miles an hour would be like a pretty good amateur male golfer or a really Copy. good female pro golfer okay let, let's say 120 then right yep. i know some of those guys are crushing one so that's like right? top 25 on the pga tour yeah so you're doing 120 at 330 gram driver if i gave you a 340 gram driver you're going to slow down some if i gave you 350 like every gram you put on there slows down your maximum velocity if I took that, and this is, we see the same thing with baseball bats, right? If I take that driver and all of a sudden I can find out how to make it 300 grams, I guarantee you velocity goes up, right? You could probably now swing that thing 130. Now there's other factors with golf and 
you know, got to be able to control the bend and, and all that stuff. That's why they make them 330. I'm sure they have a very specific reason, right? And what they found, I'm sure, is that 330 is enough mass to where you can have control and implement force. Because if it's too light, there's no force transfer into the ball. Because remember, force is mass times acceleration. So if it gets super light, you can accelerate it really high, but the mass gets too low, the total force production goes down. So if it's too light, thinking about power as well, remember power is force times velocity. If it's too light, the mass gets too low, the force gets too low, the velocity goes up, but you start exchanging. You've lost too much force to gain the velocity, the total power output, the impulse onto the actual ball actually goes down. If we go in the other direction, and you get something too heavy, 400 gram, you know, half a kilo uh, club. Well, the mass would go up, so the force would go up, but the velocity would drop too much. Yep. So at some point, there's this optimal mass versus velocity game that we're playing here. And I'm, I'm, I would just be willing, I guarantee that they figured out 330 or so grams is the optimal number where you can get enough mass and a still really high velocity to produce the most amount of power possible and, and crush it out there. So all that preamble to say, if you train for high force production, so really, really, really heavy, do you improve the velocity side of that equation? Well, not really, but you improve the force side of the equation. And remember, power is half force times velocity. So if you get stronger, you can move a higher mass at the same acceleration and even potentially the same velocity. This is the point of getting stronger, right? So velocity and acceleration have stayed there. Mass has gone up. Power production goes up tremendously. So what you need to do is you need to look at each individual you're working with and try to identify where is their greatest limitation on their force velocity curve. So if somebody simply can't produce enough velocity and they are tremendously strong, well, then they need to spend more time even going down to like a 200-gram club. And this is what driveline does, right? So they'll throw four ounce, three ounce baseballs. They'll get a running start. Um, you'll see guys throw 110 miles per hour with a light ball and they practice what we call overspeed, right? So you learn to go faster. You don't put added weight on or resistance because all it is is driving you to go slower. But the same goes for the opposite person who has a high velocity but can't produce enough mass or enough strength. Or in this case, they have to produce more force at 330 grams. So that part of it is simply fixed. So if you improve and all of a sudden you make 330 grams, um, instead of it being 30% of your max strength, you make 330 grams 20% of your max strength. Well, now you've moved it down the force velocity curve. So you will be able to move that fixed weight, 330 grams. You'll be able to accelerate it a lot faster, not because you got better acceleration, but because you got stronger. So 330 grams represents a much lower load for you did you check out i know it's hard without visuals there but no it's okay you actually kind of combined my next question and the question i asked into one which is fine and i think uh this will actually be something that's really easy for the golfers to understand once we dig into it a little bit more it'll definitely require a little bit of ex i'm i'm definitely following you but i think yeah. it will take maybe a little bit of explanation for some of the the listeners to follow yeah so basically what you're kind of talking about here is and what my next question is going to be is why do we want golfers, which is the question I just asked, why might golfers benefit from training with very heavy weights that are going to move slowly? And then my next question was going to be, but what about um, things like speed speed training and specifically slightly overloaded and underloaded speed training that's becoming very popular late, lately? And you basically answered, I think, is that we want to do the very heavy weights to get stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the easy ways for people to think about this is, some of that will include muscles getting bigger so that they can produce yeah. more force. Yeah. And some of it will be the the, nerv the nervous system adaptations. You, you learn how to produce more force with the muscle fibers you have yeah. and actually learn how to access some of these fast twitch fibers you were talking about uh, at the beginning, which can be done with very heavy weights. Because when we have to try and move something very heavy, we must recruit all of our muscle fibers to do it. And it's the fast twitch ones that are quite strong. And then if we jump into the uh, what's become very popular in recent years, the more direct swing speed training with slightly um, lighter and slightly heavier clubs or sticks compared to golf clubs, 
we can use these slightly heavier ones to get a little bit stronger and learn how to produce a little bit more force in the very specific movement pattern of the swing. And then we can use the slightly lighter ones to learn how to apply a bit more velocity. Yeah. I mean, uh, for 10 years now, Lee Brown, who's was the former director of the Center for Sport Performance, so I took over after he retired uh, for over 10 years, for actually closer to 20 years. He's been a pioneer of this overspeed training stuff. So we've done all kinds of work in this area from vertical jump. You can imagine having a, wearing a harness that's attached to the ceiling. So instead of practicing you know, vertical jump with your body weight, or even doing what people have done traditionally, where they stand on a mat and have a harness on that holds them down to the ground, so you add resistance, we, said, we did the opposite. What if we put the, the harness up in the air and we pull them up in the air? So instead of jumping 20 inches in the air, now you can jump 30. We did the same thing with sprinting. So instead of you know dragging a sled or a parachute, we have a rubber band that pulls you forward. And we've seen this now. It's transferred into baseball. It's transferred into to golf. And it's very, very clear beyond reproach, in my opinion, that overspeed training is exceptionally good at improving max velo. Now, if you want to improve acceleration, then you need to add a slight amount of resistance. So we're, we're simply talking basic physics here. If you want to get better at having a higher max velocity, you have to practice higher max velocity. You cannot do that by using the same implement. It has to that's be going to be underloaded clubs or implements for golfers and things that are lighter than your driver to increase your maximum velocity swinging. That's correct. You have to be able to swing something. If you can swing 115, you have to be able to practice something at 120, 125, 130. Like Now, if you want to worry about acceleration, because acceleration is change of speed, right? What this means is you're trying to go fast, but you're overcoming inertia. So the force that keeps you down and not moving. So what you're actually doing in that situation is practicing moving an implement that's at a dead weight. So that requires some resistance. So this would be swinging a slightly overspeed club, over uh, overweight club. Yeah. So if you practice 400 grams, you're going to get better at accelerating, moving something that's a little bit heavier. So it's a little bit more towards the force end of the spectrum. Then you practice at a you know, 280 or 300 gram club. Now you're going to get better at speed. So again, it's about understanding where in this force velocity curve your limitations are. Do you need more acceleration? Do you need more peak velocity? If you want the easy answer, just do a little bit of both. You, you can't go wrong, right? Now, the one thing I, I want to say about this, we saw this with running and we saw this with jumping. I, I'm sure it's true with golf because of those three examples, golf swing, a golf swing by far is the most technically demanding, like by far. So... You don't want to go too high or too low because you'll start changing your mechanics too much. Yeah. And, and in one point, that's okay because you're not trying to swing differently here. You're just trying to learn to go fast. But if it gets too far to the extreme, more than 10% or so, people just start to feel uncomfortable. They're flying all over the place, and they, just, they don't really like it. Your club's smashing you in the back of the head all the way back because it's whipping so hard. So, turns into a different activity too, I think. It's not yeah. really a golf swing. It almost right. turns into like the way you'd swing a sledgehammer or something right. like that. You know, it just gets too heavy to move in that pattern. Yep. So just use metrics. Use your phone. I'm sure there's plenty of apps that you guys have where you can just get a basic club head speed or something. Um, and, and you want a 10% at most improvement. Anything or 10% higher, 10% low. Anything outside of that's going to get squirrely. So that's Yeah, that makes perfect point. sense. Like the... The kind of two leaders in in that realm of of speed training are the super speed speed sticks and something called the stack system, which is newer. And most of them, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like I I think it's much easier for people to understand the overload and the over speed rather than thinking about the weight is to actually think about the speed drop offs. Because, totally, totally. And what what's nice for golfers is that. Even if you're a fat, like if you're, say, a fast golfer, you might swing your driver 120. If you're a slow golfer, you might swing at, say, 80. They're both close enough to 100 miles an hour where percentage drop-offs are really easy to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. if, if, if you're dropping, you know, say, like, so you want to make sure that when you're doing your swing stuff, it's going roughly, and this is a, a gross kind of <laughs> estimate now, is 
something that goes about 10% or sorry, about 10 miles an hour faster and about 10 miles an hour slower. And maybe on the extreme end going to like 15 faster and 15 slower. And that's what we see with all these, all these speed training tools, basically. And I like the point you touched on too, that it's slightly different depending on the golfer. If you have somebody who is exceptionally good when they're swinging something that is heavier than their driver, but then they really struggle to go faster when they're swinging something that's a little bit lighter, they're probably going to benefit more from getting better with the lighter ones rather than continuing to get better with the heavy ones because there might be a better transfer to when they're actually going back swinging their driver. Yeah, I fully agree. The The only part of this conversation I want to make sure we're not losing also is you do want to spend the major chunk or bulk of your time in that slightly over, slightly under speed stuff, right? That's where power is going to get maximized. But then don't forget the first part of our conversation, which is also peak force. Yep. You also have to do the stuff. If that ne- means you need to add more muscle mass, that's fine. It's not a quar- requirement. But I, you know, I, I watch a lot of golf. Uh, I've been watching a lot of golf for a long time now. And I, I can't ever remember seeing somebody on the PGA Tour to be like, that guy is just too strong with too much muscle. Right? Of course, there's a point of way diminishing returns with muscle mass, but uh, we're nowhere near that level for the most the majority of people. So as long as it doesn't change your mechanics, um, adding a little bit of muscle is probably going to be benefiting the vast, vast majority of golfers. I mean, there's a few exceptions, but the vast majority are going to be just fine by adding a little bit of mass. Yeah, something I was actually going to make sure we move back to there was we discussed a lot about the kind of using the slightly overloaded and underloaded tools. And a, a limitation I see in, in golf is, is what you just pointed out. A lot of people get very consumed by training with these tools and they do, they do, they do gain some speed. But I often explain to people is that if you take someone who is, say, not particularly well conditioned, they're pretty weak, they don't have very high power levels. Yeah. And you get them training with these tools. Sure, they'll gain some speed, but they're still probably going to be quite slow relative to, say, the average golfer or definitely high speed golfers. But if you take someone who's gotten exceptionally strong and powerful with their lifting exercises in the gym, some jumping, some med ball throwing and slamming, and then you um, complement that with some of the, the speed stick or the overload and underload training, they're the people who have much higher speeds. We, we never really see the people who only ever concentrate on the swinging get as fast as the people who are also really, really strong and really powerful. And when you look at the athletes or the golfers who swing and throw the fastest, they're never really small and weak, even though they're using light implements. The, this, the, you can't really get away from the general athleticism of the muscle mass, the muscle strength, and the muscle power. No, you're, you're dead on. I don't even want to comment on that because you said it perfectly. Okay, that's, that's good. Because strength is never a weakness is what we say. It's never yeah. a problem being too strong. That's, that's what I've been trying to kind of inform golfers of since I started you know, producing educational material about it is that I basically tell them, and it's, it's more of a gross simplification of what you just talked about, but if we consider the golf swing, there's two sides that we want to attack. We want to attack it from a... I call it slower and heavier side where we're doing general strength exercises that don't even look like, and we don't even try to replicate the golf swing. We're just trying to upgrade our muscle tissue, our tendons, our nervous system, basically make everything stronger, more powerful, function better. And then we can get specific with our actual speed training, with our slightly lighter, slightly heavier clubs or implements, and actually trying to swing your own golf clubs faster and faster. And it's when you merge the two of those together that you see the really big benefits. I think yep. golf has probably gone too far to the um, realm of, you know, we, we don't want to be getting bigger and stronger because golf clubs are light. We need to practice speed and people practice speed and speed and speed. And then they hit a plateau really early. Like there's countless examples of people. I've probably got over a hundred and honestly, maybe even a thousand when I just consider like social media comments and stuff like that. People who start on a speed training plan, they do great for like six or eight weeks. Sure. And then then it stops. And then they're at that same speed for the next like year. Mm -hmm. Or usually what happens is they're at the same speed for like the next three months and they just quit. They stop. And kind of what I tell them is that 
once you've basically, you know, kind of wrung the sponge or the towel dry in terms of the speed you can get with your current body, you need to upgrade that body. You yeah. need to make it bigger and stronger. And one of the examples I use actually that might help the listeners too is that like, and I don't mean this to like compare genders or, you know, you can get into trouble for, for that these sure. days, but it's, a, but it's a good example is that there's roughly a 20 mile an hour difference between average club head speed on the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour. And what I kind of tell people is that if we got all these girls on the LPGA Tour practicing just with slightly heavier, slightly lighter clubs, swinging as fast as possible, how much of that 20 miles an hour are they going to make up? And my answer is maybe a couple, maybe like three or four or something like that. But now if we got those people also training with heavy weights, getting way stronger, gaining muscle mass, jumping, throwing and slamming med balls and did their speed work, I think you could probably double the gains they'd get or maybe even more compared to just doing the overload and underload speed work. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Um, you, it is important to understand that gaining strength and muscle size are correlated and they are related, but they are not the same thing. So folks who are just dead against gaining muscle mass for any number of bad or good reasons, that still doesn't preclude you from getting stronger. Yep. You can absolutely get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and not gain or add much muscle mass at all if that's your preview. So for the golfers especially, there's just no reason why getting stronger is a bad thing. No, no, no yep. reason whatsoever, right? Um, poor training that leads to injuries, that's not the problem of getting stronger. That's the problem of poor training, right? Because um, you'll hear this argument, I know you used to, it's like, well, if I do all that strength training, I'll ruin my shoulders or ruin my well poor training yeah sure but if you, if you have even a little bit of an idea what you're doing not only is it going to not injure tissue and joints it's going to make them better it's going to be able to make them handle the thousand swings you take every day more effectively right it, it's going to make you age um better muscle quality remains so it's just a win-win-win all the way around a couple of days of strength training a week is, is going to pay dividends over the course of a couple of years yeah, it's fantastic. Um, something that I didn't have written down, but it actually, you reminded me of it there when you talked about improving the quality of how joints work and aging better is that a common um, kind of reply to the need to get, you know, definitely stronger. And if getting a little bit bigger comes with that, fine. But um, people often ask about uh, what about maintaining or improving mobility? And they're concerned that a lot of, you know, heavy lifting um, can make you stiff, tight, lose yeah. mobility. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So number one, you can go back to the 1960s or so, because we answered that question back then. Right. And it's been just from, from our side of it, scientifically, it's no one asked that question because we've known the answer for over 50 years. Uh, if you add a really large amount of mass and there's physical mass in the way, then maybe you're going to have some problems. But outside of that, we have no reason to think increasing strength would reduce mobility. In fact, almost always we see the opposite case. So we'll think about it from this perspective. If you wanted to increase hamstring flexibility, you could sit and stretch your hamstrings for 30 seconds, but you've got a hamstring capable of producing, you know, a, a, a hamstring curl of 200 pounds. And you think that sitting there stretching it lightly is going to make a change in that hamstring. When it is strong enough produce, to produce that much force, there, there's no chance this happens, right? However, if you were to in, uh, go into the weight room and you were to do hamstring curls where you're getting full extension and full flexion at 180 pounds, now we actually see great improvements in mobility and range of motion because you're training this over the actual range of motion. So you increase the range of motion at a load, and then we get what we call strength in the range of motion. So you learn to produce force at its full extension and full inflection. So your ability to produce force in higher ranges of motion goes up, which is what you actually need to perform, right? That's yeah. basically what the difference between mobility and flexibility technically is, correct? When people ask that question, mobility is having the strength through the range of motion and being able to get there by yourself, whereas flexibility is more just having the range. Yeah, kind of people play back and forth in those terms. Um, typically mobility is something like joint related and flexibility is uh, muscle specifically, but 
the point is it's not functional, right? So a functional range of motion is needs to be strong in a deep position. So if you take somebody who's doing full range of motion squats, getting full range of motion at the knee, hip, and ankle, has great strength overhead, can row, um, shoulders can go all over the place, um, full all the way down, full the way up with pull-ups. This person's only going to enhance or improve improve the stability in these deep ranges of motion, internal external rotation, whatever we're looking for. So it's only going to add to it. I would recommend that you go back and read. Um, in fact, I did a podcast on on my show, The Body and Knowledge, season one. I think it's called Biases Collide is the name of the episode. But there's a very famous story of a guy named Dr. Karpovich, and he basically said the same thing. And he went to a, a famous bodybuilding show, and I'm, I'm giving you like the 10-second version of a very long story. And all these people were flexing and posing, some of the most famous bodybuilders of all time. And he basically said, okay, fine. Uh, well, this is all great, but scratch your back. You know, and basically he was saying, you're all big and strong, but you can't move. And of course, all the lifters on stage immediately, boom, reached over and scratched the bottom of their scapulas. And he was like, oh, shit. And he's like, yeah, but what's your GPAs? Expecting them to have, you know, like be idiots. And they all have four. <laughs> And then he said, okay. And one of them reached over and grabbed two 50-pound dumbbells, did a standing backflip with the 50-pound dumbbells, and then went into a full split. And from there, he changed his entire career because at that point, he thought resistance exercise did exactly what you're talking about. So that's what I'm, I'm sort of saying. Like, we've known this from the 60s. Well, he was the first one to start studying it. In fact, he realized, again, not only was strength training not making you inflexible, it's actually enhancing flexibility. Enhancing. And to, to make this, like... To, to make sure that there's no argument here. The reason we think about that flexibility thing is because of one movie in particular. And you can thank one man and one movie for causing this entire myth to exist. And that's Arnold Schwarzenegger and Pumping Iron. So in the 1970s, when that movie came out, people thought all strength training was bodybuilding. And they looked at those guys, and when you have that much muscle, there's only so much range of motion you can go through because the muscle gets in the way. And so it was like, yeah, these bodybuilders, great, 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 but they can't even do, and, and but for the record, typically bodybuilders are extremely flexible because they're training over four ranges of motion, but they can't swing a golf club fluidly because they got muscles getting in the way. And so we have this myth, like they can't, they have nothing. Well, that's, that's assuming you are literally doing years of pure bodybuilding. You're probably taking anabolic steroids. Your entire life is dedicated to maximizing muscle growth over the course of five or so seven, 10 years. Anything outside of that is unlikely to put you in a position where you're going to lose muscle mass. And again, I've never seen a, a I've never seen a golfer that I'm like, man, that guy would be a good bodybuilder. Yeah, never, yeah. ever. Even like Bryson and Tiger, they're like, they're a little bit more muscular than the pack, but they're not like, you would never see them in the gym be like, whoa, those dudes are jacked. Right? You would never see that. So it, it's just, um, it's completely unrealistic to worry about adding, you know, five pounds of muscle thinking it's going to ruin your mobility and flexibility yeah when we look to i know it's they're not golfers they're not competing with the same skill set but when we look at long drive competitors they're often much bigger and more muscular and stronger than say professional golfers but their swings are also much longer they actually require more mobility to make the swings that they make yeah. And like we can see them on TV and we see them all over the internet. It just doesn't affect them. Like yeah. the the world ball speed record was actually just broken this weekend in competition. Um, I'm pretty sure it was in competition. It might have been in one of the warm-ups, but a German guy called Martin Borgmeier hit 231 miles per hour ball speed. That's it insane. Like, it was like, a, it's it's roughly like a 160 mile an hour, or 150 mile, 155 mile per hour club head speed. Uh, depending on you know if you measure by how square to hit yeah yeah well it. It, it depends if you measure with TrackMan or the gc quad they measure slightly differently but the ball speeds are always bang on the same the club head speed can be hard to uh get perfectly but 231 mile per hour ball speed like the average on the pga tour is 170 yeah and if you're yeah, yeah. if you're 180 on the pga tour there's only 13 players average above that there's only two players average above 190 bracing and cameron champ they're they're both like 192 or something there's never been anyone close to 200 yeah. and he hit 231 on the weekend and when you see his swing like he's huge big strong muscular and he has unbelievable mobility like it, it clearly hasn't affected him and 
muscle mass is pretty hard to develop in large quantities anyway. So I don't yeah. think the the gaining muscle or gaining strength reduces mobility needs to uh, live on any longer in the golf world. No, I mean, if you want to stay 25 years behind everybody, keep believing that. I mean, if you want to stay like even just with the rest of the pack now, like you just got to get rid of that idea. I mean, show me the evidence. I would say show me the evidence because we have a lot of evidence to the contrary. Show me your evidence other than, well, like, oh, your, your 35-year-old golfing idea? Get out of here. Yeah, no, that's perfect. We're going to move on a little bit now, Andy. That was really good for clearing that up. Thank you. Um, and go slightly back into some of the physiology stuff. I won't keep you too much longer. I know your your time is uh, is precious. So the next question is, aside from fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fiber type distribution, what else affects a person's ability to reduce power? And are some of these more trainable than others? Can you maybe restate that one? I'm not sure I tracked exactly. Yeah, so when we were talking, yeah, so just basically trying to dig into genetic factors that might impact a person's ability to produce power. Mm -hmm. We talked about how muscle fiber type distribution, fast twitch and slow twitch can be one thing. Are there some others? Yeah, okay. So yes, there are, but I'll keep this short because I don't don't think it's particularly interesting. And I don't think your listeners are going to care because there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. Um, if you if you just simply walk through everything that goes into hitting a golf ball hard, you have to start at the very top. So you have to have some sort of signal from your brain or central nervous system that we'll globally call that that transverses down the neural network, goes through the nervous system. So the nervous system is one. The nerves have to then tell a muscle to contract. We've been talking about muscle and fiber type, and then the muscles have to pull on a tendon. The tendon is what actually pulls on the bone and causes movement. So simply internally, you've got nervous system, you've got muscle, you've got connective tissue. Then when you think externally, you have things like the penation angle of the muscle. So this is the angle at which the muscle fibers lie relative to the bone. So are they running right up next to the bone? Are they going at a 90 degree angle? Some angle off of that chain that alters force transmission to the bone through the tendon. You have things like biomechanics. So limb length, arm length relative to femur, relative to torso all of these things. You have golf swinging technique, right? You have uh, club technologies. All of these factors stack into it. So the question about genetics, well, genetics are going to determine your limb lengths. You can't do much about that. Genetics are going to determine most of your central nervous system. You can't do anything about it. You can train the nervous system, but it's going to determine it. Training influences the nervous system. Training influences penation angle. Training influences fiber type. Training influences fiber contractility. Um, Genetics are going to influence a lot of your connective tissue. And connective tissue is far less plastic than muscle, meaning it doesn't have blood supply. So it doesn't change with training nearly at the rate that muscle does. But it is trainable. So every single factor I just mentioned is somewhere between, we'll call it 50 to 100% determined by genetics. Um, But all the other ones that, that are less than 100 are influenced all collectively by your training. Um, We know that, for example, the connective tissue theoretically likes a different style of training than the nervous system and muscle. We have good amount of evidence on muscle. We have a good amount of evidence on training for the central nervous system. But understanding how connective tissue and ligaments respond to training is very, very murky. We have very little human research. We don't understand it much at all. Um, right now, the common guess is isometrics prefer, uh, connective tissue prefers isometrics, uh, 30 to 90 second holds. At minimum, some basic hypertrophy type of training are best for connective tissue, but that's not necessarily best for anything else. Um, but we do have some evidence that suggests very long isometrics are actually great for the nervous system as well. So you're talking three, four, five minute holds which are really actually fun to do. So imagine getting like a split squat position and holding it for you mean, three minutes. You mean not fun at all. <laughs> yeah. So um, that, that's kind of the best way to think about genetics versus not. Uh, and that's not even acknowledging things like psychology and focus and yeah. determination and will and all that other stuff, which is, you know. No, that's perfect. It, bas- it basically means that the things that we can control is basically all down to training and lifestyle as such how how we design our training programs and activity is all that we can worry about and the only thing that we can use to to move our physiology in the direction we want for our sport yeah if you have the neural control that you're born with 
where you can repeat the exact same swing, you know, 99 times out of 100, then that's what it's going to take to be a professional golfer, right? Because you got to be able to make sure that you just square up the ball every single time. And then you can move it a little bit this way, move it a little bit this way, you can change your launch angle, all this stuff. Well, if you can't consistently replicate movement patterns that are that complicated at that high velocity, 90 plus percent of the time, you have no shot because you'll never have the consistency needed to get better and to produce and to play well. That's typically what determines a large part of the low-level pros versus the highs and the low-level pros versus the amateurs, right? It's just like being able to produce the exact same movement pattern down to the millimeter at high velocity over and over and over. And that is still practicable, of course. Do you think some of that motor control is genetic? A huge part, yeah. Yeah. Huge portion of it. It's practice. Certainly, we know practice, practice, practice. A sport like golf simply takes a tremendous amount of reps, right? Especially when you factor in the different types of shots and the different feels and the different lies you're hitting off of and the different foot position. It's just an infinite amount of shots you've got to physically practice, right? And you got to make the right decisions on the course and you got to read things. So it, you can see why it's very difficult to succeed. But first and foremost, all that, if you cannot simply reproduce the exact same swing, uh, swing under standard conditions, you don't, you don't have any shot. Yeah. And some people are born with a natural ability to do that. Others are not. That's interesting. That's something I'll have to dig into a bit more is in terms of the, say, genetics that help us with coordination, motor control, the ability to execute fine motor tasks and things like that. Yep. Um, aging eventually leads to a decline in physical function. Are there certain physical qualities that drop off more rapidly than others? Yeah. And this is very clear. If you look at endurance, muscle mass, speed, strength, and power, without question, speed is the first thing that drops. And we have a good reason for that. Fast twitch muscle fibers are only activated during maximum force activity. And if you don't use those fast twitch fibers, as you enter middle age, they start dying and they are not recoverable. As you get to even early aging, then you've now lost a reasonably high percentage of these fast twitch fibers. They don't come back. So we start to see speed drop off very fast. You will never see somebody 40 years old competing in the 100 meter dash in the Olympics. 35 is very rare, right? But you'll see 35 year olds in the marathon. Endurance stays around for a very long time. If you look at the differences in world records of the all-time world records compared to like the 40 to 45-year-old age group, 45 to 50-year-old age group, and you kind of do these master's things, you don't see much drop-off in endurance stuff. You don't see much drop-off in strength. So the world record for a 50-year-old in a squat is still probably 900 pounds. Yeah. It's really, really high. You see, When you look at the speed stuff, you get slow yeah, very fast. You're not going to see it in like the triple jump or the sprints or something like that. You're not seeing people pitching at 95 miles an hour at 50. 100%. You're, you're never going to see that, right? You're going to see folks maybe succeed, but their velocity is going to start going way down. So peak speed is the one that's the hardest to, to keep around by far. Muscle okay. mass can stay around for a very long time too. Yeah. So basically endurance stays the longest um, or the easiest to maintain. Muscle mass and muscle strength are reasonably okay to, yeah. to maintain or improve. And speed is the one that really tends to drop off quite early. And we need to be cognizant of that. Yep. And that's why we need to put more, so much more of an emphasis on that. Because you got to build yeah. that. you got to keep those fibers alive. That's perfect. Just because I don't want to depress anybody listening who might be <laughs> slightly older. Um, and I think this is an important point that people sometimes um, actually forget about too. Is And, and it is important is that you used, um, let's say, records or times from a kind of elite or high-level athletes dropping off. They're people who have been, say, training to yes. reach their ceiling for years, yeah. and then they're starting to decline. So, like, Usain Bolt can't, you know, keep running 9.6 into his late 30s and early 40s. He can't get any faster. But if you're 65 years of age and you've been doing nothing for the last 30 years, that doesn't mean that you can't get faster because you're starting from such a low level relative to where your ceiling is. Because we see people accomplish improvements in speed as they get older, but it's people who haven't been doing a whole lot, basically. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. And we have seen this many, many, many times. 
even we've even done studies in our laboratory with 80 plus year olds and we have had no problem getting them bigger faster and stronger we've added muscle mass we've added we, we you can increase the amount of fast twitch fibers you have and it's actually very common we see that quite routinely the amount of fast twitch fibers in a 70 year old goes up with just as little as six weeks of training twice a week no problem right three times a week maybe uh, we've seen the velocity and the force profile of the individual fibers go up. Um, in fact, I would say if you did a study on any age group, 60, 70, 80, and you didn't find that, I would say you're the anomaly. That's a weird finding because the vast majority of scientific scientists would expect you to get faster, stronger, and add muscle. No question. Yeah, that's super. Um One last question, Andy, and then I'll just have a little follow-up summary for you. Uh, are there any key considerations to make when designing training programs for females versus males, apart from the things we just talked about, you know, making it force velocity specific, is there actually, you know, biological differences that need to be really considered for getting the adaptation to training we want? For the bulk of the time, for the bulk of people, no. Uh, if you want to get hyper precise, so if I have had a fortune of working with a, a large number of very high level female athletes, a lot of female fighters, a lot of female wrestlers um, at that level when you're trying to combine pretty rapid weight loss with i mean we're talking like olympic gold medalist type of performance helen what's her last name i can yeah helen marulis is one of them marulis yeah um, tatiana suarez right now uh, i'm about three weeks away from the ufc world title fight with lauren murphy uh, i could go on and on um Morgan King, Olympian in weightlifting. Steffi Cohen has 27 world records in powerlifting. You're talking about a girl who is a physical therapist, so finished her DPT. Um, she weighed 119 pounds and has deadlifted almost 600 pounds. Um, so uh, I've been to this like, at a pretty high level. For those folks, we can play some games with different things around their menstrual cycle. And sometimes that becomes important. Um, but for the scenario and, and the folks you're talking about, you probably don't have to get to that level unless some individual females have particularly difficult cycles or some things to worry about, really high injury rates, um, all those things. You don't really need to. We actually see the rate of increase of strength and hypertrophy about the same for men, well, pretty much the same from men to women. So women can get strong at the same rate and can add muscle. And I'm going to say that again. Women can add muscle at the exact same rate that men do. That is, that is the scientific standard. That's not like a weird study from Andy's lab. The scientific standard, especially for untrained or moderately trained women, is they will increase muscle mass at the same exact rate that their equal part men will. So you don't need to change anything. Um, again, if you want to get to really high level detail, typically women handle volume a little bit better so they can do training more frequently they can do more reps they can do more sets and recover the same men tend to need more back off um, they need a longer taper typically or they need you know less volume it's not always the case but that's a yeah that's a, sort of a fair general statement but other than that you can pretty much um, train in the same as long as the physiological system is under control so if like any of the athletes that we work with we do very high level laboratory diagnostics so we do urine stool blood hair samples and we make sure that their physiology is is correct and once you do that you can see pretty much unlimited gains as long as everything's there um without that level of precision then it's always a guessing game right so if i don't know what's going on with your gut you've got a you know vitamin deficiency that you aren't aware of maybe you don't even feel that bad but you're not processing protein appropriately. Because of that, you're not generating enough testosterone or your estrogen, estradiol or progesterone is a little bit off, something like that. Then you're not going to see the changes in performance. But the reason I'm bringing all that up is um, I would say the strongest correlation I have ever seen between folks that get exactly what they're looking at in terms of training adaptation and the ones that don't or the ones that get bad results, it's never because of things like age or gender or sex, it's always, oh, not always, but like almost always because of they've got some infection in their gut that they don't know about, 
They've got a heavy metal toxicity built up. They've got something going on, on going on physiologically. And once we identify that and get that cleared out, then the programs work. That's for elites though, correct? Who already have the basics in in order, like things like sleep, nutrition, or does that apply? Well, you're you're just dealing with high performance athletes, essentially, correct? Yeah, well, the vast majority of them don't have the basics. No, you don't think so? No, I, I know so. I work with them every day. Yeah. They still have terrible sleep routines. Some of them eat extremely poorly. Um, they're very talented athletes, but they're not necessarily any better at any of the things that you are. Um, some of them you would look at physically and be like, you're not an athlete. And then you watch them perform and you're like, whoa, I mean, it's just like a golfer, right? Like you can see a golfer and be like, you're a professional athlete. Now, I mean, my fighters, I could, you could look at some of my fighters. You'd be like, no way that, that girl or guy's an athlete. And then you see them, you're like, okay. Um, they play, stay up all night playing video games. They eat Jack in the Box. And all, like they do, they don't, like some of the systems are, the NFL guys I work with, Major League Baseball guys, it's the same shit. Some of them, you're just like, you're a 21 year old child. Like, what are you doing? You just happen yeah. to be extremely good at football. Uh, and those folks, once we like, we put them on basically like high schooler routines, it's like, okay, you're going to go to bed at this time. I'm watching your phone. I'm checking your sleep tracker. I'm like, you said you're asleep. I see your sleep tracker. You were not. Okay. Like we, we do these things. Um, so no, like they're professional athletes are not, uh, they're, they're not on standard that much different than the rest of us who just happen yeah, to be very really good at one thing. Not everything is optimized. They're just very, excellent at their activity. Very rarely, very, very rarely. Um, a lot of times we come in and we make some pretty sweeping changes. Uh, we oh. change careers just by doing some some pretty basic stuff. So I bet. Andy, I just have one more kind of summary that I'd like you to uh, to fill us in on that might help some of the listeners. I I always try at the end to get something that's really practical and and kind of a useful nugget for the listeners. So pretty much all of them, like I said at the start, are you know your your general everyday person, um, you know, middle-aged, love golf, love training. They're all interested in, especially when they listen to this, is keep their club head speed as high as possible. They're looking to make gains as they get older. You don't need to get into specifics, but what are very important training modalities that they need to have in their routine to basically fill all their buckets, to stay on top of their physical function as they get older and, and not see this drop off that so many see and maybe even get a little bit better as they get older if they have room for it, you know, with their genetic ceiling. Sure. So number one, do something at over speed. So go faster than you can capably go right now. Number two, practice at your speed, right? So whatever your thing is with your implement. Number three, Practice a little bit heavier than your speed, or then a little bit heavier than your implement. Number four, practice a lot heavier, but fast. Practice and do something that is a maximum or close to maximum strength. Do something that enhances muscle hypertrophy, and then do something that we haven't talked about at all that enhances muscular endurance. So repetitions. Uh, this is what builds. Uh, well, muscular endurance, number one, but also builds connective tissue, joint health, all that. So if you do a little bit across that entire spectrum, you're golden. Yeah. For people listening, just to try and sum that up for them, I might be able to help them relate to the things that they see in their programs is that the first three, the slightly lighter, the same weight and the slightly heavier, that basically refers to golf swings. So that's going to be covered with your super speed sticks, your stack system, whatever you're using there. You're a little bit heavier, but still moving fast. Uh, not to take words out of your mouth, but I think that things like jumping, yep. med ball throwing yep. and slamming Bingo. could fill in there. Totally. Um, then when you're talking about the getting basically kind of covering it in one, you're bigger and stronger. That's lifting heavy weights that don't need to resemble the golf swing. Things no, like squatting, hinging, should, yes. pushing, it, pulling. 100%. They should not be golf swing looking at all. Yeah, fantastic. And those bigger and strong or those uh, bigger and heavier weights, they help you get bigger and stronger. And then maybe do some stuff in higher rep ranges to help with your muscular endurance. And that can also benefit the, the hypertrophy or the growing the muscle size. Yep. That's it. That's perfect. Andy, thank you a lot. I really appreciate that. I took uh, a lot of notes. I think the listeners will take a lot from it. And it was a real pleasure to get somebody on who's say not technically uh, from the golf world or an expert in golf, but more of an expert in muscle physiology, research and science, and try and apply it to 
golfers and fit the system they need. I think that that's something we need more of in the golf world is looking outside for more clear-cut scientific answers and allowing the practitioners in the golf world to kind of filter to golfers as opposed to golf experts trying to come up with what golfers need when they're maybe going outside the things that they're they're really well um, educated in or are capable of. Yeah, well, it was a pleasure to be here. Just, uh, we got a little rough start at the start, but uh, fun talk nonetheless. Yeah, thanks for hanging in there. I'm glad the computer sorted itself out, and I'll be in touch soon, Andy. Thank you very much again for your time. Cheers.